Hello, listeners. It's Simply Excellent. You are back with our Village Voices podcast, our jaunty little conservation podcast where we explore topics of outdoor education, positive youth development, community building, nature education, and how they all kind of connect to protect the natural world. I'm Jay Highland with Project Emo, and I will be one of your hosts today as we return to our topical Conservation Matters dialogues. Also with me today is our newest host, Xavier Fowler. How's it going, everybody? Xavier. As part of our Conservation Matters episodes, we're going to talk with scientists, engineers, foresters, educators, science communicators, and all sorts of folks in the village and just find out how our youth evolve into conservation-focused professionals. In this episode, we're going to connect with scientist, filmmaker, TV show host, educator, and adventurer, Rob Nelson. It's great to be here. Thank you very much for coming. And, you know, for the last 20 years, Rob has been, he's worked as a biologist and a wildlife educator with the goal of reconnecting people with nature. Uh, He is a behavioral ecologist, an author, a television host, and a wildlife filmmaker. He combines his love for storytelling, teaching, and the natural world into very powerful visual documentaries. He's gathered over four dozen filmmaking awards for his work, including an Emmy for Untamed Science. He has also hosted some 24 television shows, including Secrets of the Underground, Life After Chernobyl, and Man-Eating Python of Sulawesi. Rob now runs Stone Age Man in the Wild Classroom, educational projects that help us reconnect with our natural world. And we, are Project Demo here, are connected with Rob to integrate his amazing wild classroom content into some of our virtual programs with youth nature education. And we're just thrilled to have you back with us in the village today, Rob. Yeah, it's great to be here. I think we have a lot of shared interests. Very much so, kind of that synergy of, of, uh, of our passions here. Um, so Rob, you've been working in this kind of amazing space at this unique intersection of science, science communication, art, and storytelling for, for over 20 years now. Um, mm-hmm. And you started your professional journey studying behavioral ecology in Hawaii and then launched into this kind of amazing path that includes creation and storytelling. What drew you to behavioral ecology as a course of study and what kind of research did you do in this process? Well, I think the thing that drew me first to science was uh, fish. I had an aquarium when I was in high school, and then that multiplied into five aquariums before I left for college. And it was just fascinating to look at a world that you don't get to see very often more intimately. You know, you could um, scoop out fish out of a lake and put them in an aquarium and then look at them in a way that not very many people could. And so I went to college originally to study fish, um, which is what I did in in Miami as an undergraduate and kind of fell in love with scuba diving and coral reef fishes. Mm. And then when I went to Hawaii in grad school, I decided that I wanted to study something about coral reef fish. And I started looking at different things that were known and unknown about the fish in the area. And I stumbled upon a shrimp goby relationship so it's a shrimp that lives with a fish in a hole and there was very almost nothing known about it and when i started looking into it it the behavior of the two seemed to be the coolest thing to look at like why was it that the shrimp was um living with the goby and and was that related to the predators in the area so it was a behavioral thing like if you took predators away what would happen to these fish so that's you know there's a lot of things you can study in ecology which is the relationship between animals and the natural world both living and non-living and this just seemed to be the first introduction for me and i went on to do a lot of other things too because i'm not i wasn't restricted to just fish i did plants i did invasive species um and yeah i i think it was just 
an initial curiosity that drew me to it. And then that curiosity bloomed into pretty much everything in the natural world. Right. It was not restricted to behavioral ecology. I think that's a, a very common theme I hear when I talk to folks that that work on the line of conservation and science. Uh, you know, the natural scientists that there's this this route. And when they were a kid, they had some sort of a pet. It was, uh, we talked to a gentleman a, a while back. It was, he had a pet carter snake. You had fish, like I had lizards. Like it's just this kind of thing where people just kind of have this very personal connection. So uh, that kind of launches this process. And then at some point you started sharing your knowledge with the world, right? Um, what experiences did you have leading nature tours? Um, you know, you that kind of, did that inform your teaching and storytelling? Yeah, I think so. So when I was in grad school, as a part-time job to help me earn money. Well, I had two part-time jobs. One was teaching introductory biology classes. Mm-hmm. Um, it's kind of what you do as a grad student. You teach the undergrads. Right. And then the other one was to lead nature tours. So I would do maybe five or six nature tours a week, sometimes stacked double on top of each other on weekends. And that those two experiences really taught me a lot because when I was on a nature tour, I was with people who had kind of an interest in the natural world because they signed up for a nature tour, but they weren't biologists. They weren't studying biology. Mm -hmm. Uh, They just wanted a fun tour. So they're often older, older people going on hikes. And it allowed me to see what, what was it that people understood and didn't understand about the wildlife around them. And then when I was teaching undergrads, I got the same perspective, but from a younger generation. Okay. And um, I, I think the nature tour thing just made me realize when you're communicating science, you've got to be fun. You have yes. to make it entertaining yeah. because you can't get the information across if it's just dry. And so mm-hmm. it allowed me to interact with people and kind of spice things up as a storyteller. <laughs> yeah. What, um, and then that transition, like you really kind of you know, magnified that storytelling. You go from, researching and teaching in the classroom to nature tours and then you're a wildlife filmmaker that could not have been an easy transition what did that that, what did that journey look like well for me it was a pretty natural transition because you know filmmaking is a storytelling technique Mm. uh, much like writing is uh, or telling verbal stories on a nature tour, except that you're showing it to an audience that's sitting down in a movie theater or, you know, and now online. But yeah. what what happened was I had to teach my undergraduate students about a lot of things that they couldn't see. Mm-hmm. So maybe it was starfish or urchins, or we'd do a thing on worms. Okay. And we didn't have those things in the lab. So what I would do each week was go out with my video camera. I had an underwater video camera set up for my research and I would film them and I would talk a little bit about it. And then I would cut together a two or three minute video and show in the class, partly because we were provided little DVDs from the 1990s (laughs) that were terrible. And I just couldn't show them that they made everybody go to sleep. But when I showed my videos, because I was in them and kind of being more engaging to the camera, people loved them. Yeah. And so I kind of got a little bit of, um, I, I definitely got addicted to the process in that first scenario. Yeah. And that doesn't really exist so much today because there's so many things available online that you could share with students, but uh, it allowed me to kind of dabble in the filmmaking space. And then I sold those to the biology department and kind of got my first job as a filmmaker. Oh, that's brilliant. That's brilliant. Double paycheck. <laughs> yeah. Right. There's nothing like 
getting excited about doing something when you're getting money for it. Right? That is, that's mm-hmm. the dream right there, right? Um, so communicating science through story, you know, you'd mentioned how commuting, communicating that raw data, that raw academic content can be challenging. Um, mm-hmm. What are some of the biggest challenges to communicating science through story? I think the biggest challenge most people have when trying to communicate their science is that they they lose the perspective of what other people know. They kind of think other people are on their same wavelength. Mm-hmm. And maybe because of that, what they think is interesting is not interesting to the other people. So you have to kind of like spend a lot of time interacting with people that are not you or in your little circle. Yeah. So that's the nature tours were great for that because I started thinking, well, what would these people think is really interesting, right? Or what, what would my students think is interesting? What would be a hook? Yeah. Um, and so oftentimes, you know, finding that hook, the thing that engages the audience, that's the tricky part. And then diving in because um, say it was shrimp gobies, I, nobody knows what a shrimp goby is. So I can't start there. I have to go back. And I, have to be, I have to be like, okay, let's let's think of something like a interspecies relationship people know about okay. and relate it to that, like dogs and humans. It's like, okay, this is like a dog and a human, but for the fish world. And now let's look about what's cool about it. So, yeah. And then I think the second thing is people need to make it entertaining as well as mm-hmm. full of facts. And that's challenging for a lot of people because if you're a science-minded individual, you don't often have that comedic twist to your personality. Yeah. And that, I mean, it's hard. It's hard to have both. But so it's a cha- that's the challenging part. Folks, we'll be right back with more of our conservation and science communication conversation say that 10 times fast, with Emmy-winning filmmaker Rob Nelson. But for a moment, we'd like to tell you about one of our closest partners and friends here at Project Emo, Holiday Hill. There are just some places that when you walk around in the woods, it feels a lot like home. Holiday Hill Day Camp and Recreation Center in Mansfield Center, Connecticut, is one of those places. For over 60 years, Holiday Hill has created a world of action and adventure where kids learn important social and physical skills in an atmosphere of encouragement acceptance, and fun for everyone from ages 3 and a half to 14. They also provide a tremendous staff and training program, turning 9th and 10th graders into leaders through their NEST program. The skills and values young people develop within the growth zone created at Holiday Hill will help prepare them to face the challenges of building their best selves for life while meeting their need for adventure and social connection today. Holiday Hill also has a specialized program from our early elementary through middle schoolers called the Finches Program. The staff in this group employ strengths-based social skills groups that focus on children and teenagers with pervasive developmental disorder, Asperger syndrome, high-functioning autism, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, and shyness. They use a fun, activities-based philosophy of practice rooted in dialectical behavioral therapy. If you want your young ones to have experiences that truly last a lifetime, go check out Holiday Hill Day Camp and Recreation Center in Mansfield. Trust us, so many here in our own Project Emo Village grew up there, worked there, and still call it home to this very day. Visit HolidayRecreation.com to learn more about their programs, activities, and to start what we promise will be an amazing adventure. I have a quick question. So you mentioned a little bit about your 
past spark that got you into studying wildlife? Um, mm-hmm. What was it about that curiosity, that like following that passion that led you to filmmaking and, and the science aspect of it? Why did it not just stop at the curiosity for you? That's a good question. I mean, the cure. So, I rem- I remember being very curious about um, the natural world from from two two instances. Um, one was in the fifth grade, when I was in Boy Scouts, and I took a wildlife survival merit badge. And one of the things we were supposed to do is go sit out in the woods for twenty minutes, or maybe it was an hour. It was a long time at that mm. time, and I. I remember sitting out there and watching the squirrels jump around and thinking, wow, I had no idea there were squirrels around here and they're all over the place and there were rabbits. And so there was, there was an initial ability to stop and pause and observe mm-hmm. that I, I realized then that, wow, I should stop and do this all the time. So, so I think that's important for some people to have that initial pause. Um, and then the, then I remember in high school at some point sitting on a dock looking into the lake and looking at little plankton in the water and the little fish coming up to him and just being very curious about what was underneath that. Um, but that, So that was the curiosity. But then I think what was really amazing is that I had the ability in high school to take a marine science course. And I also had my parents who told me that I could do that if I wanted to, to continue with that degree because... You know, if you stop and think about it, there's not a lot of money in marine biology. So I needed somebody to just say, keep doing it. If that's your passion, keep doing it. And I, I feel very lucky to have had that. Um, and I know, well, maybe a lot of my friends didn't necessarily have that. So so I think there's a couple of things. One is being able to stop and initially see it. And then secondly, to have people in your life that encourage you to keep going uh, and pursue that curiosity even if you don't see the financial reward at the very end yet. So I work with, with uh, youth, as I mentioned to you earlier, uh, I'm a physical ed- educator. And sometimes when you work with students, especially in, in a realm where you're trying to make them move their bodies, it's hard. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so you mentioned that early spark that you had and the curiosity and then connecting that back to folks that don't necessarily are as passionate about the things that you are. What is one way that you've used your passion, your knowledge now, you know, years and years and years to connect back to folks that, you know, in layman's terms, how do they understand that spark? How do they get that spark? Or how do you help folks find that spark within them to follow that passion? Well, I think finding the spark is so difficult. Um, And I really believe that the best way to do it is one-on-one. I really do. I, we try to leave a couple courses a year, but it's it's never, you need that one-on-one and the longer you have it, the better. So when I did nature tours, I had four hours with people and I kept thinking it's not enough. You need at least an overnight, you need a week. Um, I think that's what you guys are doing with Project EMA that's really cool is you're actually one-on-one with people and you have the ability to to create that spark. You know, I'm I'm doing it what I hope, well, With the videos that I'm making, I'm encouraging people always to get outside, but it's this weird conundrum because I'm, I'm making videos and I want people to watch the videos, but at the same time, I'm telling them, stop watching the video and go outside. (laughs) 
Um, and so in some ways, I hope maybe I'm more training the trainers through the videos, like giving them some knowledge that people who are actually able to make the difference one-on-one -on -one with people can do it. Question for you, is it a, do you think it would be effective as a simple way for, for students and, and youth to connect back with this and with all the technology that they have now as well? Do you think it's as simple as going outside with your phone and recording what's around you? I think that a is a great to... way. No, I, I really do. That's a great question. Um, so I, I will say that despite the fact that I said I just had a spark sitting on the lake and looking at the fish, one of, you know, the other, the other piece to that is at the same time, when I was about 17 or 18, I had a video camera with me. And I mm -hmm. used to like go out for hours at a time and just film. I, I would narrate over the top as I was filming grasshoppers and plants. Oh, that's I would do like a yeah BBC documentary. It's like, <laughs> and here in the wild, there's a grasshopper who is burning in the sun. And then I would turn it. And there was something about that technology and knowing that there was going to be a product out of it that was just so cool. And at the same time, it got me outside. And, I, and we didn't have phones and stuff back then, but I see it with my son. I give him the ability occasionally to just film. Like he can't play games, he can't watch YouTube, but he can film stuff and it oh, gets right. him out and he starts emulate or like pretending he's me in some ways. But I, I think Excellent. that's important because it allows you to start observing. Because once you start observing things and taking pictures of them, then mm. you start to see it differently. So yeah, I think that's a good start. Yeah. Okay, so we have this start for getting youth to get mm -hmm. reacclimated with nature is, you know, yep. get outside. That's a step one. Step mm -hmm. two is you, you find that spark and that passion that leads you to continue to study and be an observer and be a scientist. Part sort of like three I'm thinking is what do you tell those young scientists or young professionals who are in the grind of trying to keep that passion going? What advice can you give to someone that after they've gotten the spark, after they've been out in nature, after they've been observing, how do they continue to make that passion into something that they can, you know, sustain a living off of in case they can't become a filmmaker or they can't, right? you know, what is something that they can do to apply, like what's the next step to applying this stuff to your immediate life as a young scientist or a young professional? Do you think? Yeah, well, this this is such a challenging question because I have spent a lot of time in the last few years talking to, I would say, early career scientists and young filmmakers, uh, not even young, old filmmakers. Bo both of these two fields are very challenging fields mm -hmm. because even someone with, well, you read off my resume. <laughs> it sounds like a, a massive resume. But I have had a very difficult time making it work too. Like I'm... I am very aware that it is, it can be very challenging mentally to continue in this field. But I think that one of the things that I've realized is that filmmaking is a tool that will, so there's two sides of this. There's filmmaking and the science part of it, right? You know, so I'll just say with the filmmaking side of it, it is a tool. It's like writing. The better, the more you work on it, the better you're going to get. And it will right. translate to every field that you pursue, right? So I don't just make science films on YouTube, right? Occasionally I'm helping people with their marketing videos. In fact, mm. that's half of, half of what I do. 
maybe it's the orthopedic surgeons down the road. They need a little bit of something or other, or mm -hmm. I do a lot of barter with my video work. Sure. So we create a little community. Um, and then, and then from the science side of things, I don't make my career as a scientist anymore. I try to convince scientists that if they can mixed a little bit of filmmaking into their science, it would make them better scientists. Mm -hmm. But that's, a, that's almost a whole different f career path in itself. And that's challenging. And you probably need to find a science mentor first to go down that route. Um, so yeah, I don't, I don't, finding advice for people is hard in that world because er everything that's a little bit of a passion project is going to be mentally taxing. <laughs> we have put a, a lot of priority lately in society on doing what makes you most passionate. Mm. Mm. And that can be challenging because there's, you know, say you pick marine science as your passion career and, or, you know, this is a better example, being a dolphin trainer. Most of the people I went to school with wanted to be a dolphin trainer. And the reality is there's like 10 of them, mm. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And then what happens later in the road when you realize you can't be a dolphin trainer or that dolphin trainers make $20,000 a year, and it can lead, yeah. it can lead to some mental health problems, but you can also be excited about almost anything you look at, right? Yeah. Like you can get excited yeah. and tell stories about almost anything in it. You don't have to pigeonhole yourself so much. So a lot of it is, is learning to be an entrepreneur at the same time. Yeah. Like, I don't know if this vision, this may not have been the vision that I wanted from the very beginning, but it's the vision that came about because I was trying to find what is the hole that I can fill. And I've had to learn how to be the entrepreneur and figure it out and do, you know, I, I run courses. I wrote a book. Uh, I, I do side gigs as host, as a TV host here and there just to make ends meet. And I'm trying to figure out like, what can I weed out? That's not my most favorite thing, but I'm still doing it to have sure. a family. And yeah, you know, so I don't know. <laughs> it sounds <laughs> like you're sort of pulling in the best parts of what you're passionate about as you go along. Yeah. And that's what you do. Right. Trying to slowly make it more and more fun and rewarding for myself. But yeah. And I think there's also that balance um, between the passion for the work um, and that flexibility needed to integrate passion with the rest of life that can be that grind. Um, mm -hmm. Even from like even from Project Teamers' perspective, I love developing the team and the concepts and the programs, and I love running the programs. But I, I just had a an hour and a half long phone call with an accountant this morning. That's there's no passion there, but it just has to get done uh, to stay afloat, right? So, you know, I think there's there's that um, to your point, Rob, that that need to have that flexibility uh, and broaden the scope um, to to implement the passion where we can. Yeah, well, and I I really feel like finding the purpose that drives you is really important mm -hmm. because that will make it rewarding for you in the end. And I've, I've slowly kind of modified what I think my purpose is. But as I've gotten older, so much of it is revolved around mental health for people. I see it in every, in my loved ones around me. I worry about my kids. And so I'm trying to figure out how to, how to navigate it and give people good advice. You guys probably see it in the youth that you work with. Very much so. Um, and I, it's not all about 
happiness and showing people all of this, the fun stuff. So I worry about posting on social all the fun things, quote unquote, fun things that I do and leading people in the wrong direction. Um, But I, I feel that connecting with nature is one piece of a puzzle that maybe because of my background, I can give people some tools to learn more about that they can then go and explore on their own. Well, and there's, there is so much science behind our neurobiology once we get into green spaces. I mean, our brains are hardwired for that environment um, and mm-hmm. the positive impact on mental health time in nature creates. Rob, how do you th- what do you think our current storyline is going to say about our neurobiology or about our mental well-being with less and less green spaces and you know, science, climate science telling us that we're running out of time to have green spaces and to have a healthy atmosphere. What do you, what do you think that that storyline is saying about our neurobiology and our mental health in the, in the near future? So there's a couple parts to that. Um, I think, I, I think, okay, so climate change, that's obviously one thing. Um, and, and things are going to be changing. I, I have worked with a lot of uh, climate scientists and uh, the, the thing that's important to understand there is that climate will be warming in some places and not warming in other places. So th- this is just an interesting note because it goes back, comes back to mental health. Um, on the east coast of the United States, oddly enough, the climate is not going to be warming and getting hotter and drier like a lot of the places. So, okay, so that's one thing. You can worry about it other places. I think that's important to some degree. But also, if you live on the East Coast of the United States, you probably will be okay in the near future Mm. if you go out and not worry so much. Uh, You know, they call it um, uh, like eco-anxiety. It's Mm. a whole thing, Mm. right? So instead of like focusing your attention on all of this doom and gloom that's happening on social, Mm-hmm. But, you know, there's science and data behind all of that. Yep. If you're on the East Coast of the United States and you just get outside and live in the green spaces that you're in, then maybe you don't have to worry about it so much, right? Because see, the, here's, yeah. the, here's the thing. I I see so many people who are green warriors, I'll call them. They're, they're mm-hmm. very into protecting the climate. But at the same time, they're not getting outside, <laughs> Which one is worse, their own mental health for not doing it and just getting out there or, you know, the the global, global climate change that is happening right now. Mm -hmm. So um, I I really do believe that as the climate changes, things will just change. But each individual has the ability to go out and make their own space a good space for them. Right. So mm-hmm. let me put it this way. Any individual, it is almost impossible for them to change the trajectory of global climate. But for mm-hmm. any individual, you can make a difference in your own community or in your own neighborhood or in your own backyard. Right. Yeah. And that is something that from a mental health perspective is really nice to hear that you can actually make things better in your local area and you can do it and then yeah. see it. And so I guess with with what I'm trying to say, I don't want anybody to think I'm a climate denier or anything, which I'm not. <laughs> no, it's it just doesn't that, sound like you know, I I, I want people to feel like they can do something and they can, 
and it's related to like going out and making their own little green space work for them. I, I, I see it probably a little harder for people who live in cities, um, sure. but uh, yeah, there's, you have to get really tiny and do it on your balcony or something. <laughs> but, right. Mm. It really kind of changed that urban green space dynamic a bit. Um, yeah. And that's, it's a good trend that I see happening. It's pretty cool to see. But again, like what you're saying is if you, if you give people that knowledge that they can change their immediate environment, mm-hmm. you know, someone from the city doesn't have to look outside and say, the world's over because all I see is buildings, you know, they can, oh, you know, let me buy a few plants and put it in my apartment yep. or my dwelling and, you know, make my space a little bit greener. No, it's so true. And I, I think it gives people some feeling that they can make a difference. And then I think the other thing that's important is to understand history a little bit better. People don't do that so much. Um, I used to teach a course um, in Hawaii that was the history of the Hawaiian islands. And we would show photos of the islands. You know, I don't know if you've ever been to Oahu, but it's a pretty big city there uh, with Honolulu. But back in the 1920s, the entire hillsides were cow fields. And if you go to Hawaii now, the mountaintops are mountains and forests and they're beautiful and you can walk through them. So the take home for that is that in the last hundred years, we've went from something that was completely deforested to a decent green space. And that's Mm. true with a lot of things. And, you know, the alligators almost went extinct. Buffalo, there's, um, you know, a lot of things were at their low point in the 1880s to about 1930s. Things started to change in the 1960s and 70s with the Clean Air and Clean Water Act, Endangered Mm. Species Act. Um, You know, when I was growing up, we had acid rain issues and huge station issues we don't have those problems anymore and in a lot of places things are getting better yep mm. climate change is putting kind of a a, a big curtain on every everything and, and people are especially young people feel like it's doom and gloom all the time they don't see the progress that is actually happening mm. because it's focused on the bad things and, and there are bad things and we got to work on those bad things but there's also a lot of progress that's been made. Well, that's a that's an amazing point because I think so much of you know eco anxiety is this in all the messaging we hear is that it's it's unavoidable, it's you know there is this doom and gloom outlook, but it's I suppose it's already trying to motivate the population through to to take action through, through hope or through fear, and I think to your point the the hope on that individual level, on the community level, the hope is what's going to get people out and moving. And it's going to get folks to really acknowledge that you'd mentioned, um, you know, Oahu and the deforestation, Connecticut, our tiny little postage stamp of a state was at 1.93% deforested. It was one of the first states colonized and they just wiped out everything for farmland. That has changed substantially. Connecticut is very mm-hmm. green. Our, our area around where you know Project Demo Base Camp is is mm-hmm. is a ma- massive uh, tracts of, of forested land. And I remember the you know growing up in the eighties and the threat of acid rain that was like on the news. The video of you know pockmarked statues uh, from from the the acid erosion on them. Um, and there has been a tremendous amount of improvement and understanding. I think not just academically but across the entire population that that this is valuable and we need to do something. Um, and I like that. I like your, your hopeful outlook. Mm-hmm. Um, well, and there's a, there's a big movement right now called eco-optimism, mm. which is um, trying to teach more of this optimistic view on things. 
and you guys deal with storytelling. I think it's important to understand that there has been a lot of research done into how do you convince people to make uh, to make change mm. in a, in a positive way. And this is all done through the University of Florida, but they found that messaging that revolves around fear and anger and um, disgust are actually not very effective at creating change. Mm. You know, th there is some of that that you see, um, but the more positive change is from pride, yeah. uh, from awe, and from humor. So those are three positive emotions. And so I, I like to think awe is like your BBC stuff. Yes. <laughs> like, wow, that is so awesome. Yeah. Um, a pride, I feel like if you can pat people on the back and say, look, you're doing the right thing, because people, most people want to do the right thing, continue right. to do it, you're going to feel more motivated to want to keep doing it. And then humor, which is just a difficult one, is a nice to lighten things up. Well, I think that's that's huge. The, you know, that outlook, what spurs productive action um, mm -hmm. rather than just, you know, rage and anger and, you know, charging onto social media, you know, being a keyboard warrior isn't going to accomplish much of anything, right? Um, but sending that message of hope and the community connections that it takes to make impactful uh, conservation efforts, how critical do you see community efforts um, in the connections between people to making that impact? Well, I think this is probably more of your specialty. <laughs> I should probably be asking you this. So my, my view on a lot of this this uh, mental health question is that um, I, I think community is something that's ingrained in us in how we evolved, right? Yeah. Um, being part of nature is how we evolved. So you have nature and you have community. I feel like we all need to have a sense of purpose within that community. Um, and all of those things are going to help make us happy. Um, the problem I see today is that, especially in these cities and suburbia, is that people are so transient that I don't know how you connect well with a small community. Yeah. Like even in my neighborhood, like I'm... <laughs> I'm trying to stop some of the development happening that's just like creating these massive apartments, you know, on these beautiful tracks of river around me. Yeah. Um, because it, it would be so much better for the community to have little little houses and people have a little land and everybody gets to know each other, but they're creating rental houses and it's just, it's not good for the community, sure. but I have almost no say in it. So I, yeah. I don't know how in the society we live in right now, you create that community so easily because people just move around so much. Um, mm. I don't know. What is your take? <laughs> I, I think I exactly think, that. Wow. There's so much challenge. Um, and also, it's not just the transient of nature of the physical community. It's the mm -hmm. fact that within 20 years, what has gone from small communities to whatever you saw in your broadcast media, now we are now daily f just totally inundated with the entire global community because of social media and the ease of right. access to literally more more power at the tip of my cell phone than existed in the first Apollo space program mm -hmm. and that connects us into this global environment that is just it's overwhelming um, and mm -hmm. really exceeds our human our brain's capacity to establish trust and connections so I think right. there's a bit of a, a gap there um, but it sounds a lot like what you're talking about, that individual community-focused effort one-on-one 
um, mm-hmm. guided by best practices is really going to make a difference. I think what's what's funny is, um, you know, as you mentioned, the the parks near you and the, that natural environment getting destroyed. Like where I live, there's a there's a natural there's a trail mm-hmm. connected to our apartment, and I couldn't tell you how many times you just walk that trail and you see someone and you spark up a conversation just mm-hmm. because of the proximity of being outside in a space where like no one's concerned with time if they're outside of the park going for a walk. No one's right. concerned about what's going on at work or the office. It's, it's almost like a place of escape, but it's the real world. Right. So I think it's, it's interesting when you, I think that's, that's that unifier. That's that connector mm-hmm. is when you start to take people away from the connector to us all, which is mm-hmm. the natural environment, we start to lose that natural connection to each other. And then you have that falsified connection through social media and yeah. through all the entertainment that you have in a cell phone. So I think to answer the question, which is not really an answer, I think in our own ways, Project Demo and everything that you're doing, Rob, that is our way of connecting people mm-hmm. through the way that we have taught society to connect through this phone or through the internet back to the thing that matters, back right. to nature. Folks, we love the concept of eco-optimism and the power of positive and hopeful messaging to create action surrounding conservation efforts and more. However, a critical element of any charitable organization's capacity to deliver positive programming is the support of dedicated partners like our friends at Pro Bono Partnership. Take a moment to learn just a little bit more. Project Emo wouldn't be where it is today without the generous support of Pro Bono Partnership. Their team of experts helped us incorporate and gain charitable 501c3 status. At every step of the way, the volunteers at Pro Bono Partnership offered guidance and diligent counsel to help us grow in ways we never could have achieved on our own. Pro Bono Partnership is celebrating 25 years of providing free legal help to nonprofits in Connecticut, New York, and New Jersey. Founded on the belief that strengthening nonprofits will make stronger communities, The partnership's mission is to provide nonprofits with the legal advice and educational resources they need to build capacity, reduce risk, and enhance programming with confidence. The partnership services were never more critical than during the last two years, when the global pandemic led to shifting requirements for nonprofits and a greater need for services within communities. The partnership and its 1,400 volunteer attorneys were there to help, providing 38,000 hours of free legal assistance to nearly 900 nonprofits valued at $19 million in 2020. Pro Bono Partnership is also a nonprofit organization, and your support is what makes their mission possible. Learn more at probonopartner.org. Rob, what are some of the most important lessons you've learned in science and conservation storytelling? I think the most important thing is finding a good hook. Mm-hmm. And um, and then you treat a story a little bit like a roller coaster. So you have an up, and it's like, oh, that's cool. And then it kind of goes down and up and down. You know, it, it's you can't keep it, you keep it up the whole time, right? But you got to be able to like get it, engage people, and then reengage, and then reengage. And that's the same mm-hmm. if you're in the classroom or you're telling a video. You got to constantly think like, let's let's get people back into it constantly. So I think that was the one one of the biggest take homes for me. And the challenge of 
creating shared stories. How does the story go from my story and Rob's story and Xavier's story to our story? Part of my realization in the last two or three years is that we all evolved in the Stone Age. So my story mm-hmm. telling all revolves around this idea of we are all Stone Age people. And we've had a very small blip in time where we've had technology, even a small mm-hmm. blip in time where we've had agriculture. So the shared thing that we all have is that we have a shared evolution. You know, that's part of my science background. I see everything that way. I see our genes and our DNA. And and I start to think like, what what are the things that we share? And, you know, it's, it's how our hormones relate to uh, a predator, you know, or anxiety, how does anxiety mm-hmm. relate? We all have those same responses. Why is it? You know, so I'm trying to kind of relate everything back to a long history of evolution from the yeah. human race. Um, so I think, you know, from my own storytelling, that's how I like pull it all back. You know, so I see everything through that light being the vast majority of our time as a species was pre-agricultural. It was hunter-gatherer. What was it like to live there? Our brains haven't changed much, if at all, since Mm -hmm. the agricultural revolution. So how does that, knowing that our bodies, our minds, our physical structures and cognitive processes have been the same for so long? You know, if you look at all of that through mental health, you know, I, I see a lot of the anxiety that we have related back to our shared evolution and and how it was very functional in the past like you need to be aware and alert if there's a predator at your doorstep but now you know you could look at your stocks or i don't have stocks but you know you could look right. at something so remote on your phone and then you can get that that same anxiety yeah. that you would have with a line at your doorstep yet there's nothing you can do about it Right. Right. And so there's a disconnect between the anxiety that you feel. And, you know, we, it looks like we evolved with probably a maximum group size of about 300 people throughout most, much of human history. Um, And that gave us a place in that community and it allowed us to know the names of people in that community. Um, But you get larger than that. Like you said, with your phone, you have, you know, billion people you can connect with. And that makes you feel like you're not even part of the community anymore. So, you know, I, I like to always see things as like, okay, well, how, how did we probably evolve? That makes sense. Now what's happening? Now what? Now we were smart enough, we can figure out what are the pieces we can connect back to, Yeah. right? In the mm-hmm. past, we were forced to have a small community of 300 people, and we were forced to live out in the, in the woods, right? And mm-hmm. for better or worse, that actually was probably good for our mental health because it balanced out all these emotions we're having. Yeah. Nowadays, we have to pick and choose. We have to tell ourselves, okay, we need that connection to nature. Let's force ourselves to do it. Let's have that community of people. Let's talk to the people on the path with us. You know, so we have to be really particular. If not, you could just sit on the couch and play video games all day and, and kind of be miserable. What, what advice would you give, Rob, for young science storytellers there's a couple of pieces that are involved in telling stories um one is all the like understanding what makes a story that's kind of a hypo you know you know you 
it's a little bit theory based, right? You know, that's understanding everything sure. you would learn in English class. But the other piece to it is a very technical aspect that I think is important for people to learn. Like you can't tell science films via story. You know, you can't tell stories via science films if you don't know how to do all of those things. Right. Mm. So developing the skills is really important. Um, and that just takes practice. So many of the people that I talk to in conferences, um, they, they're really excited about the idea of doing what I do, but have never just done it. Does that make sense? Yeah, so my absolutely. first and most important advice is just do it. <laughs> However do it. you find the way to do it, just do it. Yeah. Like get your cell phone out. There's plenty of filmmaking tools on there. You, you go get a video camera, just do it. And, and believe it or not, that's actually the first advice I actually ever got was uh, just get a video camera and just start telling as many stories as you can. There's so many things to consider, uh, but taking that first step and, and, and enjoying the process. Yeah, I mean, I've probably made now over 2,000 short five-minute films uh, in the last 20 years, but and I'm just pumping them out one a week kind of thing. Yeah. And I feel like only now am I getting good enough that maybe I could consider myself a professional at it. <laughs> it's taken a long time. <laughs> I look right. back at stuff I did 10 years ago and it's just like, oh my gosh, that's terrible. But right. Yeah, you need the you need the skills at the same time. And then the I suppose the other advice is if people really want to go down this route, you also have to understand how to do business. And people always forget that part part yeah. of it, you know, how to be an entrepreneur and like get people excited about wanting to pay for the stuff that you're doing. Yeah. You can just make it and expect that it's gonna happen. Yeah. <laughs> Either. Pitch it to somebody or sell the idea. That's important too. And that sort of goes back to. Oh, no, go, sorry, ahead. go ahead. I was just going to say, and that sort of goes back to what you were saying about storytelling, like marketing, almost like mm -hmm. did your interest and passion. Yeah, you know, I think the, well, the one of the first stories you can tell is your own story, mm. and, you know, when you pitch your idea for something you guys are doing it with project emo i did it with untamed science you have to convince people that you have a good story to tell yep. and so that's a story in itself it's good so um rob i can't thank you enough uh, for taking uh, time with us today in in sharing with us your you know your experience your wisdom uh, your in your creative energies with with everybody here with, with xavier with me and, and with the folks listening um once we get this beast uh, put out to the to the to the broader world here. Um, mm -hmm. It's just so important to have passionate scientists and storytellers, you know, share their voice and their stories, um, you know, for a variety of reasons, from these global conservation issues to really personal mental health issues. And and I'm glad that we spent time discussing that um, and kind of touching on that today. Yeah. Well, I will end by saying I commend you guys doing what you're doing. It's a lot of the vision that I know I should be doing, but like actually interacting with people um, and getting them out there, I think is so important. And I really commend you for what you're doing. It's, it's super good. And um, maybe sharing within communicators like we're doing now is one of the best things we could be doing together. Yeah. Uh, and maybe in the future, I'll come up in that, that way and go on a nature hike with you guys. That'd be cool. That, that would be awesome. And so for folks that are listening at home, how do our listeners keep up with your stories and connect with you out in the big wide world? Mm. Well, I think the easiest way is on YouTube. I run a channel called Stone Age Man. Mm -hmm. I'm on social platforms as Untamed Science. Okay. And um, mm. 
Yeah, although I'm tapering my social use, but yeah. I'm definitely putting <laughs> stuff out on YouTube all the time. Excellent. Yeah, we will definitely make sure that folks have links to those uh, so that they can jump out and and check in and see what see all the amazing things that you know I've already seen and, and would love to share with the world. Um, yeah, thank you so much, Rob. I really appreciate it. Uh, this has been a great great chance to just catch up and uh, and, and and learn. Yeah, thank you, guys. Yeah, thanks, Rob. I appreciate all the knowledge you were able to share with us. Mm-hmm. Villagers, on behalf of Xavier and I, we thank you for tuning in to another episode of Village Voices from Project Emo. We're just so grateful for the support and listenership as the podcast has grown to well over 800 listeners from 15 countries across the planet. Still working on the International Space Station if you're up there uh, in space. And you know what? While we're at it, let's get this thing broadcasting out of perseverance. We're talking at you, NASA. Let's, let's go interplanetary with this thing. This episode with science communicator, behavioral ecologist, and Emmy-winning documentary filmmaker Rob Nelson was a real treat for us, and we hope it was for you, too. Be sure to visit StoneAgeMan.com and Rob's YouTube channel. You're going to end up going down a really fun and educational rabbit hole with all the stories that he tells through his art. This was the second to last in our very first series of the Village Voices podcast as we wrap up our podcasting season and head out into the summer months and actually get away from the editing table and head outdoors for some Project Emo programs. Our next episode will land in June and feature the intersections of art, health, and nature with artist Dory Bergman. You'll also get to meet a new member of the Village Voices crew, Annie Zarka, so be sure to stay tuned. If you like this episode, be sure to subscribe and share it out. If you really, really enjoyed this episode, hop on over to projectemo.org and find out how you can provide programs that connect youth to the outdoors and you can help them build their stories along the way. For now, we here at Village Voices hope you have an amazing journey wherever life's trails may take you.